this is how, you know, I work and I'm not going to let, you know, a client dictate how I'm going to work, you know, unless they're paying for it. <laughs> That's the voice of Andrew Grail, owner of Designable. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Andrew Grail, owner of the Guilford, Connecticut-based furniture company, Designable. Andrew is a builder, a fixer, a tinkerer. Ever since a young age, working with his father, he has had the desire to make things with his own hands. He also has the spirit of an entrepreneur, someone who embraces the opportunity to survive or fail based on the choices that they alone make. Putting these two ideas together, Andrew has built his own furniture company from the ground up, and he sure learned a lot along the way. Follow along as we talk about making contracts that protect yourself and the client, the importance of keeping your mind fresh, how pricing can be easy, and much more. So let's jump right into Andrew's story and hear about his journey in his own words. Uh, I'd say probably nine or 10 years old, my dad, uh, growing up, built our childhood house that we lived in. And being that I've got uh, three other siblings, two brothers and a younger sister, uh, we were tasked with, you know, helping him all the time doing stuff. As we got older, you know, he's like, hey, I'm going to, you know, work on the car. You know, I need help. You guys are my labor force. So we normally got picked to do all those tasks with him. Uh, and it, I just caught the bug. I just kept building things with him and just kept doing it. I'd gone through high school. I My first year of high school, I went to a trade school, a state trade school. And, you know, they had all the, all the shops, automotive, woodworking, carpentry classes, and hairdressing and all that stuff. Uh, so I'm like, oh, I'm keep doing stuff with my hands. I'm interested in that kind of stuff. And then that school didn't really work out because the teacher we got assigned to hurt his back. He spent the entire year out. We had a substitute for the whole year. I said, well, this isn't working for me. So I'm going to transfer to another school in my hometown where my older brother was going. And uh, most of the kids I went to elementary and middle school with also went there. So I'm like, well, I'll get back into the school with the friends that I know. And first day getting into school and signing up for classes, like, oh, how many classes do you want to take? I said, well, what do I need to take? You know, English, math, all the rest of the stuff. And they're like, well, you got three slots here. You can take some study halls or like a wood shop. I said, yes, I will take the wood shop. <laughs> and it turned out that the teacher was 
you know, a lifer there. He was there for over 20 something years. Uh, but I knew his son from middle school and elementary school. I showed up first day of class and I'm like, hey, look, I, my dad's going to get me some material to build something with. I got a bunch of projects I want to do. He immediately took a liking to me and said, this is fantastic. He pretty much ignored the rest of the class and taught me everything that I didn't already know from my dad. Fast forward, high school graduation, just getting any job I can get to get jobs. I didn't go to college. I started taking some graphic design courses, but that only lasted for a couple of semesters and then they canceled the night program. So I couldn't do that anymore. I ended up getting a job working for a woodworking power tool store called Woodworkers Warehouse. I ended up being there for five years up until the day they went bankrupt. <laughs> I was their operations manager at a local store, but I had that bug of just always doing something with my hands. So if I was building it for me or building it for friends, that's what I enjoyed doing. After the woodworking store closed, there was a door manufacturer, manufactured doors, but I was a salesman. They already had a full crew of people doing that kind of stuff. That fizzled out. And then right after that, I started uh, a company with three other friends. We did website design and graphic design, which I currently still do. Very limited basis. I'm basically maintaining work I've done for prior clients. I'm not really taking on new people unless it's, you know, going to pay some. But now I've been full-time self-employed, 12th year in business, not including the five or six years I was with that other firm doing the web and graphic design. I've been pushing furniture making for the last four years heavily, uh, and it's been working out good for me. I haven't had to write any websites or logo designs or anything like that. So it's been a little challenge, but having been self-employed for the better part of two decades, you learned, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that, save money, because you never know when your next paycheck's going to come. It could be three days away, it could be three months. <laughs> you say it's been a little bit of a challenge, and I hear that. I hear that throughout your story, things have been challenging. But every time there was a challenge, like your first woodshop teacher hurt himself and you lost an entire year of learning. Your graphic design class got canceled. The wood store you were at shut down. All of these things were setbacks, but you kept going. And the next thing or the thing after that was better. You grew from that. You didn't take these bumps in the road and stop. You kept going. And that is really what an entrepreneur does. That's what somebody who works for themselves has to do because you're the one who's making things happen. That is what an entrepreneur does. Right. That's so true. I got to do everything. I'm a solo, solo entrepreneur. Everything I do has always been by myself. I don't have any business partners. I do have local friends that if I need help, I can make a quick call. And then, you know, in 10 minutes, someone's over to help me lift a 400 pound table into the back of a van. But for the most part, it's me doing everything, every aspect of the business, marketing, all the back end financial stuff, everything. It's all it's all on me to do. So but I've learned how to how to manage that, just figuring it out myself and saying, well, this is what I want to do for this. And this is what I want to do for that. And if I need to do some sort of outsourcing or something, I have avenues in the area or, you know, nationally, you know, someplace online I could deal with to get things made. But for the most part, I try to do everything myself because that's just the way I've been raised. Don't really rely on anyone else. You know, it's it's a 
bad thing to say. You should you should rely on other people, and I do when I need to. But for the most part, I just I'm humble enough to do it myself. I you know if it takes me a little longer than I budgeted to build someone's table, well that's on me. You know, that's because I'm my brain's working a certain way to say, well I like this design that I made for the customer, even though it's a quick pencil sketch. Uh, something might spark my interest and say, well let me try something different. You know. I'll give it a half hour or an hour and say, well, let me try making some mock-ups of a different design and see if the customer likes them. And, you know, nine times out of 10, they do. And I'm like, well, it's not going to cost you any extra. I just wanted the experience of trying to do it for myself to see if I can better the product. You say that you do a lot of things yourself. You take it on yourself. You understand that this is your company and, and you grew up with the idea that you can make it. And if you don't know how to make it, you can figure out how to make it. And that is your thought process. But you've also been doing this for a long time and you are a smart business person when it comes to running your own business. And you know that there are some things that you can't do that maybe they aren't cost effective for you to do, or maybe you don't want to invest in the machinery to do that because they're more one-off pieces and it doesn't make sense. And so you do outsource your work. You outsource your CNC work, your metalworking, your leatherworking to people in your area. When you do that, what kind of partnerships do you have with these shops? Is it is it an official partnership or do you just source around for the best places to work with? I'll generally deal with uh, the, a lot of the local businesses. I've actually become friends with the people. So I've known them, either been buying materials from them or I know them from some other purpose. So I'll always reach out to them first because I know I'm going to get not necessarily looking for the best rate every time but I want the best quality I can get. I want someone that knows how I operate, the quality that I try to produce. I want them to produce the same. So I tend to lean towards those types of people for those things. I when I reach out to people um, like that aren't local to me, like a good examples, I got some, I built a wormy maple dining table recently and it had a cabriole style leg. Now I could have made those and I gave the customer the option of that. I said, hey, we can source solid material or a lamination. I can make this shape of the leg if you'd like. But uh, I had also sent her the options of looking for other leg styles from a supplier down in, uh, I want to say Georgia, it's Osborne Wood Products. And they did a phenomenal job getting the legs, but the customer chose to have them do it. So I could just focus on building the top. I said, oh, if you know, you're, it's your money. If you want to pay them a little bit extra to get that, to get that done, that's absolutely fine. Um, but that was a recommendation I got from uh, a local friend of mine, Steve. He uses them a lot for a lot of the tables he builds because he's pumping out even more furniture than I am. And he doesn't have time to, to be producing all these legs all the time. It's, it actually hampers his business. So he sources them from Osborne. So I gave them a shot as well, too, after seeing the quality that uh, he was getting from them. And like I said, it's something like that. It was a referral. I, if I didn't get the referral from him, I might not have reached out to him. I might have just done it myself and not given the customer the option. It's important to have that network, to be able to not only have people you can use to help you build things, but also a network network 
of people who can give recommendations because you just can't know everything all the time. You have to be able to reach out to people and learn new things and figure out the best place to get something if you're not comfortable building it or if it's not in the budget to build. So having those local connections, but also having those wider connections is a really important thing when you're running your business. And I noticed on your website as well that you share all of the lumber yards that you work with. Do you share those lumber yards as advertising for them where they're paying you? Or are you just sharing them because you have a good relationship with them and you want to put their name out there and you also want to be the type of person who people can talk to and ask about referrals for where to get things? That is a perfect question. Um, and a, a good point, too, about uh, whether it's being paid by them or doing it out of the kindness of my heart. Uh, I'm doing it out of the kindness of my heart. Um, the lumber yards I deal with, uh, I have a relationship with. I've been uh, buying from these places for years, and I like the products that they have, and they offer a wide variety of different products from each different supplier. And uh, going back to the networking aspect of it, networking is huge. When I was with my first business doing the website design and graphic design, we joined the uh, local chamber of commerce like the first day we incorporated. We're like, well, the next thing you do is you go join a chamber of commerce and you start meeting people and you use that as your way to market your business and what services you're providing and stuff like that. Uh, and we were rampant with it. Every function that they had, if we were at every single one of them. We were at their office probably at least twice a week just because we wanted to see, hey, what's going on? You know, we're, you know, what, what info can you give us to help us get, you know, our name out and stuff? So I tell everyone new that I meet that's starting a new business is to really, you know, if you not don't want to join the Chamber of Commerce, at least get to some kind of hub events or something like that where you can network with other people, even if they're not in the same genre that you're in, that's fine. Make connections because those connections might not pay off in the first two weeks or two months or two years. You got to play the long game. It's the long game of, hey, I'm going to be a resource for this person to call me about something. And, you know, if it takes 15 seconds to answer, you know, you don't send them a bill. You just say, oh, you know, that's free information. Network with people, make those connections so that you become the expert that everyone wants to come to and everyone wants to refer to. So I've been networking with everyone. I just, I mean, I like meeting people and especially people that are like-minded and especially doing the woodworking craft. I like to see what other people have for tools and how they go about building different things. Even now, you know, I'm, I'm still calling people and asking for advice on certain things only because a lot of times I think about, I'm going to build something and I'm like, Oh, I start thinking about it and an hour goes by and then I'm like, oh, I just wasted an hour thinking about which way to build it instead of actually building it. Or I want to make sure it's a valid way of doing it before I waste a ton of time and say, well, I could, I could build it this one way. You know, I could do the dovetails and build this whole piece of furniture, but everything's going to be hidden. And then my mind says, well, but it's, it's still a good practice and a good structural way to build things. And then I'll get a second and a third opinion. It'll be like, oh, no, you know, Pocket screws will be fine or, you know, some other type of joiner will be totally fine because as a whole, the whole thing's going to be solid. So I still like reaching out to people for 
their opinions. And I do get a lot of calls. I do get a lot of direct messages on Instagram and a lot of emails, people asking advice on how did you do this and where did you get that? And I don't mind telling people where I got that stuff. It's we're we're all in this together. Yeah, everyone's competition, but we're also, you know, brothers and sisters in arms. When you do get that client, when somebody finds you and they say, you're the person I want to work with, what does that process look like from that first phone call or first email and moving into the design and then actually the building? How does that process work for you? Well, it starts with, you know, the, the first conversation, whether it be uh, email or a text message I get or, or a phone conversation. You know, it starts with what's their vision? What do they want built? You obviously got to ask what's their budget because you could be on the phone with them for an hour and they have a $200 budget for, you know, a $5,000 table. So I'll start off with a series of questions based on what's your style? What type of wood are you looking for? You know, how many pieces do you need? You know, obviously getting to where's what's your budget. So it's a simple process for that. And then as they get me more and more of those answers, uh, we can start discussing design characteristics. I'll usually just do pencil sketches. I know a lot of guys will use SketchUp and all these other programs. And I'm obviously way faster with just a quick pencil sketch to give a client an idea of this is how it's going to look. And then I'll, uh, as we transition into, okay, I've got a quote. They like the quote. They're going to pay a deposit. To that point, I'll either refine the sketch or I'll actually do a uh, quick mock-ups of certain details. Like if they wanted to have a particular crown molding on the top of a cabinet or something like that, uh, I'll actually make you know a piece of pine and I'll actually cut one first to say, this is what we're gonna go with. Most of the time I try to get people to come to my shop so that they can see stuff in person, especially when we start dealing with colors. Cameras taking pictures under LED lights and outside, it's crazy how the difference in color changes drastically when you show up at someone's house and like whoa that color is like green and i wanted like a blue and i'm like oh <laughs> luckily that's never happened to me because i've gone through the process of getting them to come to me or meeting them halfway if they're on the other side of the state and getting those samples into their hands so that we're all on the same page I've learned in the past from the prior business and just other mistakes, you know, like make when I first started doing the woodworking stuff and quoting things to always, always go that extra step to get, you know, their approval and get things in front of them because there are differences you can't tell from taking a photo on something. You mentioned earlier when you were talking about that client with the legs where you were either going to do it yourself or you were going to outsource it. And you said that you gave, that client multiple options you do it yourself or you outsource it and you gave different pricing for that is that how you do most of your pricing where you have a project you have a design that the client signed off on and you say these are the different options is that how you do your pricing no that was a one-off scenario uh, i mean it could happen again uh, generally i'll give people uh options as far as materials if they want but generally it comes down to here's a quote uh you know as, as talking with the customer and saying hey what color do you want this table to be and they say brown well, i say well you know what you're in luck because walnut's already brown 
we spray clear on it and it's brown all the way through. Uh, but then when you get to the quoting point and, you know, you price walnut and people say, well, that table is now $5,000. How can we get that to reach my, you know, $3,500 budget? Then I give them the option to say, well, we switch to this other material, not walnut, that'll get the price cheaper. And we do a stain or some other type of, you know, hard oil wax finish or something uh, to get the color that they want. Uh, but generally that, that table with the cabrio legs was a one shot deal because she wanted some kind of, she sent me pictures of what she kind of wanted. And I said, well, I could build that style. Um, here's another option though for some other style legs similar to those uh, if we can't get those kind of legs made or something. So that, that particular case was a, a one-time deal. Uh, not a one-time deal. I'd, I'd say that, that one instance, it might happen again, but for the most part, I don't give them a lot of options like that. I'm not going to go through the process of quoting three or four different materials and all kinds of other constructions. It, it comes down to the information I gather from them the first time in our early discussions, how much work I'm going to put towards, you know, quoting something. When you actually give your invoice, the physical copy or the digital copy of the invoice for the project, do you have everything priced out like a walnut tabletop this much, legs this much, clear coat this much? Or do you give one lump sum for everything and that's what the client sees? One lump sum. They they are paying for that particular item and not each specific line item. Since it is a lump sum, if you do get pushback, how do you work out that pricing on your end and how do you adjust it? Well, luckily I haven't had any pushback. <laughs> it's been pretty, pretty consistent with um, everything I'm quoting is a fair price for what they're paying for. I mean, I do get, uh, people that want other options, like I said, you know, somebody wants, you know, a brown table and they don't want to pay for walnut. Well, you know, you could switch to a different material and uh, the quoting spreadsheet that I use has all the stuff listed. The customer is never going to see that. But for my purposes, I know here's what I got for uh, material. Here's what I got, you know, bottle of glue, screws, nails, whatever it's going to be, finish, all that other stuff. And I could make adjustments on the fly to that really easily to give me what my selling price is going to be. I feel like I've been giving some softball questions here, not purposely, but <laughs> I've been saying, is this how you do it? And you say, no, that's a one-off. I don't do that. Or you say, you know, no, I don't get any pushback. And so now I'm going to give you a hard one and I'm going to make you really think for this one. And that is the spreadsheet. That is how you actually do your internal pricing how have you set that up to be able to change all this pricing around and to be able to keep giving prices to clients that you don't get pushback on because it's good pricing but also make enough profit that you feel good about doing all these projects it's actually another softball question <laughs> i i got that spreadsheet um from brad at fix this build that that's that's the whole answer. That was it. I I I, I was wait <laughs> I was waiting for you to go. I was waiting for you to go more. But I guess I guess that's it. So yeah, he, that, he Brad actually sells that spreadsheet. He did all the uh, formulas and everything else for that whole spreadsheet, and I think he sells it for like nine dollars or something like that. So that's what I paid. I paid nine bucks for it. 
And I've been using that for at least two years, two and a half years or so. And it's been, it's been a godsend. I mean, before it was, Hey, look at what are you getting for materials and trying to calculate, Oh, do I triple materials? And that's a ballpark area of this. And how do I calculate labor? Uh, I mean, it's still iffy because I still look at projects and I say, well, how long is that going to take me to build? You know, how many hours do I put down? And then, you know, what else is involved? Do I have to deliver this? What's the fee going to be for that? Um, but that, that spreadsheet made a huge difference immediately in uh, my ability to quote jobs fast and uh, accurately. <laughs> All right. We're getting off that topic. We're going to go somewhere else with this and we're going to go to, I see that you have furniture on one side and you're building furniture for clients, but you also have home goods. And that is another source of income that you're bringing in. Is that something that you decided from the very beginning that you were going to have a full-time furniture company, but you were also going to, alongside of it, have a smaller home goods selection that people can buy as a different source of income? Or is that something that grew as the business evolved? No, I think it started from when I first started building uh, some furniture because uh, I'd buy the material and I'd always get more than I needed. And then the rest and then the offcuts became extra material. I, you know, I'm not going to throw it into a burn pit or just keep stacking it up. So I said, well, you know, I'm in between jobs or I'm in between tasks. Something's clamped up and in glue. I'm not going to sit around for an hour and do nothing. So I said, well, let me make some cutting boards. Let me mess around with this. So I always like to do something rather than just being idle. So that extra material turned into uh, an extra revenue stream. Why not make something? If someone asks you for a dining table, hey, it's also a good idea to say, hey, you know, I can make you a cutting board for it or use it as a hot plate or a serving tray or something. Or you can, you know, somebody's paying enough, you can gift them, gift it to them. And then that just becomes, you know, better marketing to say, hey, this they'll be able to tell their friends, oh my God, he made me this table. Then check out this cool cutting board or, you know, this other thing that he built for us and stuff. It is fantastic. You know, he just gave it to us. It was awesome. And technically, I mean, they're already paying for the material because it's already included in the cost of their job. As somebody who works for themselves, by themselves, is wearing all the hats in the business, do you feel like having the home goods as well as the furniture is ever too much like quicksand for your time? Because yes, it doesn't take as long to build some of these smaller projects. And yes, you're doing it in your downtime. But if you sell enough of them, then all the back end part, keeping those stocked and keeping that going, that time can add up. And it takes about the same amount of time to invoice a cutting board for $200 as it takes to invoice a dining room table for $7,000. And so there is that disconnect in the product time, but not in the back end time. Yeah, it does take, it does take away. It is a time suck, as you said, um, especially with like the way I do things. Um, I like to make a variety of things because I just, I want my mind to think of something different other than making cutting boards all day long. So I do have, you know, in my Etsy store, a wide breadth of different style of items. And all those things, you know, are most of them are one-offs. I'm not producing 50 of the same of something. So uh, it does take a lot more time uh, to put that kind of stuff together. 
uh, lately I haven't been doing much of the smaller home goods stuff because I've been uh, just more focused on the furniture. I've had people want a couple of vanities and tables and stuff. So I, I don't have time to do the small stuff. Luckily, you know, I shouldn't be saying this because it's, it's always nice to have residual money coming in, but nobody's been buying anything off of Etsy for the last, uh, you know, few weeks. So that's fine. <laughs> you know, I'll keep working on the bigger stuff that generates more income. But, you know, if we get some downtime, like the winter time's coming up, everyone wants a small holiday gift they can sell for, you know, 50, 100 bucks or something like that. So I'll probably ramp up a few more products uh, in the next upcoming months just for that. But not 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 too many. I think it is becoming more of a an increased labor in trying to maintain those, especially when people aren't buying some of the items for, you know, a year or two years or something like that. So. You mentioned that it's sort of a mental break to be able to do those things. And I I totally understand what you're saying. As a furniture maker or a full-time business owner, an entrepreneur in that way, you don't always have a lot of downtime. You don't always have a lot of hobbies. People always say, what are your hobbies? And you know, my hobby is sleeping because <laughs> when I'm not working, that's what I'm doing. And being able to build things like that, smaller things, keeps your mind fresh. So I, I completely understand what you're saying when it comes to that. And because you've been self-employed for a long time and it can sometimes become a little bit of a drag, but you still seem really happy about it, really excited about it, like you're enjoying it. So how have you maintained a positive attitude through the good times and the bad times of being self-employed? I think I'm just always, always building something. If I'm not doing it in my own shop, I'll, I'll, you know, to get that mental break, I'll leave my shop and I'll go to someone else's, spend half a day over there helping them with a project. It's, I mean, it's tough to have to be able to do everything yourself, but it's also kind of easy if you get certain certain processes set up to be able to do things. Uh, it's kind of easy to maintain. I mean, like you, my hobby would be sleeping because I get up in the morning and the first thing I'm doing is wearing yesterday's shop clothes and going back down into the shop and getting covered in dust. And I'll do that to the end of the night. And then when I'm done, I'll, okay, it's time to go to sleep and do it all again tomorrow. But um, it's the break of doing the furniture building. And then I might get an email during my lunch break and someone says, Hey, I need some business cards designed or something else. Well, now I can switch gears and say, you know what I can, since I work for myself, I don't, I'm not beholden to another boss to say, well, you, you know, you got to keep finishing this project, get the project done within the, the time frame I specify with the customer. So if I can want to take two weeks off, and they're expecting it in a month. I've got two weeks to build that project. I can work on other things. And I generally do work on other projects at the same time. So I'm not just doing one table at a time. Currently now I'm building two vanities, but I'm also building a coffee table. So I like the break of to be able to do different things throughout the day. Even if, I, like I said, I leave and I go to a friend shop down the street. That's a good mental break to not have to think about, oh, am I going to use screws to put this together or or what am I going to do? Do I do I put on the compressor and fire up a nail gun or something? I just leave, go to someone else's shop or just go out and clear my mind of that project I'm working on. And when I come back, I got a fresh new perspective. 
when you do that, and obviously that's working for you, that's keeping your mind fresh, that's keeping you happy about what you're doing, it's keeping you going. But how do you account for your hours on a project when you're working in that fashion? I don't. <laughs> it's bad to say, but I, I during the quoting process, I'll assume a little bit over what I think it's going to take me to do it. And again, that all comes down to you, you could say, hey, I'm going to charge this many dollars per hour, say, you know, $10 an hour to build this table, and it's going to take me 10 hours. Well, that's 100 bucks. You're not going to sell that table for 100 bucks. The value of that table far exceeds that. So you would sell that table for 1500 So now you've got yourself leeway. So if it is going to take you 20 hours, you're still making money because you're selling it more for its overall value than the actual man hour price and material price that it's costing. I mean, everyone, you know, I would think is doing that kind of scenario saying, well, at this table, you know, it's worth this is what we paid for it in wood. But if it comes out fantastic, like everyone's does, you, know, you charge that $7,000 for that table when realistically you could have sold it for 2,500, but it's, it's worth the 7,000 and the customer deemed it worth the 7,000 because they paid it. Let's go back and talk again about customers and how you get your customers. You were saying that you joined all of the different groups that you could in your area. You networked, you reached out to people. And that is great for the business side and the building side and knowing all different people in your area for that. But let's talk about clients and how you go about getting your name out there to bring clients in. That's going to be a lot of stuff. That's... Um... I mean, obviously, the social media aspect, you got a website, you got to promote that, you got to do their search engine optimization, you got to get found locally. It's a lot of uh, referrals is what I've been getting most of my business. 60, 70% comes from referrals from my current clients. Uh, and I do get a lot of referrals from a local friend of mine who's a furniture maker as well, but he's not doing any more custom work. He's got an actual uh, storefront that he opened up this past year and he can't keep it stocked with inventory because people come in and buy it all. And then he's got to close up shop for two weeks and rebuild new stuff and open it back up and then he sells it again. So he's been sending me a lot of referrals, uh, especially for people that don't want to pay either his pricing or they wanted a different kind of style other than the true rustic that he builds. So that's how I've been getting a lot of my business. Uh, Google leads uh, have been working out a little bit, but for me, most of the part, it's been referrals from prior customers and that one local friend who keeps referring me for a lot of his clients. You're relying on customers being happy, which is great. A happy customer is going to say great things about your business, but it's not always easy especially in a especially in the world of furniture to keep your clients happy because they're giving you a mental picture of what they want and you're turning it into a physical product and there can sometimes be disconnects there so how do you keep your clients happy and how do you keep them coming back for more or sharing your name with friends i do a lot of communication throughout the process of talking with these people and getting the quote once they get the quote and they agree on everything i will berate them with 
emails and, and text messages showing them pictures of the progress on how I'm working on stuff, getting their opinion on a certain aspect that I think might look better than what we uh, originally discussed or something like that. But just keeping them abreast of how things are going, whether I've got any delays or if I'm ahead of schedule or, you know, if we've uh, agreed to uh, a delivery aspect or something like that, I could say, hey, look, you know, I could I got a friend that's doing a delivery in the area. He could drop this thing off for you and stuff like that. So I don't have to charge you the the, the full delivery fee. It would just be, you know, a subcharge just for him to give him some gas money or something like that. But I, I just try to stay in contact with people as much as possible uh, so that they feel like they're part of the project. I mean, I've actually had uh, customers where I've said, hey, if you want to come over and help with a certain task, you know, in this process to say, you know, you were actually hands on. So you can tell your friends, hey, yes, technically I did build this bedroom set because they came over and, you know, wiped on some stain or put them to work sanding. <laughs> but just being uh, personable with people and not just being uh, too stiff and too corporate. I try to treat these people like, you know, like we're friends and it's developing relationship with people that uh, leads them to recommend you to other people. And so far, so good. Everyone's been happy with the relationship we've created. Obviously, you're doing something right because you have happy customers and they're referring and it's keeping your business going well. So so what you're doing is working for you. But I have to ask, when you have clients so involved in the process and even to the point where sometimes they're coming into the shop and working on it, how do you make sure that the client doesn't change their mind of what they wanted from the first quote halfway through the project? Because yes, a happy client is great, but a happy client who's so involved in the process that they're changing what they want every single week is kind of a nightmare, not only for building, but for pricing. Oh, that's true. A customer like that would, would definitely be a nightmare to deal with. And, and, and I explained to people during our conversations, uh, you know, I'm, I'm building this for you based on the drawings that we come up with and agree on. Uh, but I'm not going to be micromanaged. You know, I, I don't allow people to, you know, call me every five minutes and like, Hey, how's it going with this? And let's do that. And I mean, luckily I've uh, been fortunate to not have anyone want to make uh, change orders throughout any of my builds, because I think it comes down to all the communication we have beforehand that locks that in uh, my contracts as well, too. When someone pays my invoice, there are stipulations in the invoice that says, this is what I'm building. There is no warranty on this. This item is actually made from wood and wood will move around with all the seasons. You know, we live in New England where there's 38 different seasons. So this wood's going to obviously move left, right, sideways, up and down. And I said, I'll do everything I can to minimize that, to mitigate it, but it could still potentially happen. Um, you know, they could put the heat on a hundred and dry everything out and have a broken piece of furniture, but that's, that's not on me. And that's something that uh, we both agree to when the quote is paid, all the clients see that line item, they can't actually pay the invoice uh, unless they agree to all those terms that I've stipulated. But like I said, I am personable with people. If something goes wrong, you know, I'm down to fix it. And, you know, 
do as best as we can to make everyone happy. Uh, but it's, it's all about setting expectations up front to tell people, this is how, you know, I work and I'm not going to let, you know, a client dictate how I'm going to work, you know, unless they're paying for it. <laughs> Somebody wants to give me three times the value of what the item was. Sure. They can, they can call me every five minutes and tell me what to do, but that's only going to last so long because I'll get that table built in a hurry and then the project's over. <laughs> what are some of the other things that you have in your contracts? Because protecting yourself is a big part of this game we all play and making sure that the client understands from the beginning. It's mostly based on the materials that are being used and the potential consequences of using those materials in said environments. You know, if somebody, uh, I built a few outdoor pieces and, you know, like I said, everything is, everything is sold, no warranty because I can't control what happens to these things after they leave my shop. But um, especially outdoor stuff, it is expressly told to people multiple times before they even pay anything that outdoor is horrible for anything made out of wood or anything made out of anything. So they're told over and over again that there's not going to be any warranty because it just it's the sun is so bad, the weather is so bad, winter times, all that other stuff. Um, I've got stipulations for um, you know if I were to get injured during the course of the build, uh, it'd be up to my discretion to uh, give them a reduced cost. They could take the project as is, or I have an option for having another local. Uh, maker finish the project and then any kind of cost reduction that might go along with that uh, if I deem necessary. But for the most part, my contract is geared to protect me uh, and it does protect the customer as well. But first and foremost, I, I got to look after myself. And again, everyone's been, no one's ever had any problem with any of that. No one's ever chimed up to me and said, oh, I looked over your uh your terms and stuff like that. And I didn't like this one thing. No one's ever spoken up anything about that. You do have to protect yourself. And that is the reality of the business and being able to stay in business. And somebody like you who has been working for yourself for a long time knows that. And there are people out there who are looking to work for themselves like you've been and they want to start a furniture business and there's also people out there who have been doing this for a long time they've been working for themselves but they don't feel like they're getting everything that they can or should out of their business from your experience in the furniture world and also as an entrepreneur in general what's some advice that you could share with people listening for running their own business successfully? Well, I would say uh, do as much as you can with your skill set uh, as far as maintaining the business. If you're not good with math, by all means, get an accountant and let them handle all your finances so you can just focus on uh, the tasks that you can do. Uh, me, I've been fortunate where I've just, you know, whether when I first started the business, I didn't want to have to pay anybody to do all that stuff for me. Wow, this guy's going to charge me, you know, three grand a year or something like that to do my finances where I can get a software and it's actually free and I can do all this kinds of stuff. Yeah, you have to sit down and learn it a little bit. But as time goes on and you get better and better at doing it, 
uh, like the situation I'm in now. I'm, you know, I'd still maintain doing my own accounting and bookkeeping and everything else for the business because I'm just so used to doing it. To my brain, it doesn't make sense for me to outsource some of those tasks because I'm like, it's so simple now. <laughs> you know, the invoicing I set up, uh, the contracts, everything's already spelled out. I'm just, I just have to go in and write the particulars for each customer's job and that's it. And then I just hit a button and it sends and then the customer does their part on the other end to pay the invoice. And then the invoice pays and it marks itself paid. So I just have to do a few things uh, to maintain that kind of stuff. So I don't see the need for myself to outsource some of that stuff, but I can see where other people not having those certain kind of skill sets or that certain mentality having to rely on outsourcing stuff. And that's totally fine. You should totally do that if you can justify the cost of it and, and just focus on what you can do the best. Those are wise words from somebody who has been doing this successfully for a while now. So thank you for sharing them. Thank you for sharing all the things that you've talked about in this episode. And I truly appreciate your time and you sitting down with me. And I wish you nothing but success moving forward in your business. Thank you very much for having me on, Ethan. It's been a, it's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at TheBuildWithEthan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.